All right, good morning. So the, uh, the guys that modeled for this also doubled for Mediterranean pirates, and they are also ribbon dancers, apparently. So it's prophets of Baal. Anyway, that wasn't that funny, but thank you, Amy Tashira. Um, all right, so I love frozen yogurt. Do you have any frozen yogurt fans in the house? One of the cool things about a frozen yogurt venue is it gives you mastery over your own destiny in terms of the dessert that you're going to get. Right? Like you get to go through, you get to pick which flavors and combination of flavors that you're going to have in terms of your frozen yogurt. And then you get this infinite like, ability to choose the ingredients that you're going to put inside the frozen yogurt. Are you going to go crunchy? Are you going to go squishy? Like what? Like which way are you going to go? And so it's actually pretty fun. Um, you also run the risk of having a Frankenstein-like experience when you do this too, right? Where uh, you unwittingly create a monster when you thought you were getting a frozen delicacy. But at the end of the day, these are just lessons you have to learn through the trial and error of figuring out which ingredients go together and which don't. Um, so when I first started taking my kids to the fine establishment of Peach Wave, uh, they just like thought that this was going to be the most amazing thing ever. And so, you know, you start out as a parent, like kind of over limiting them. And then once in a while you kind of go, you know, carte blanche, pick, pick whichever things you want. And then at this point, you know, the kids start to think like, this is this amazing freedom. I have jurisdiction over my dessert choice. And, uh, they begin to grab everything that looks good to them. And to them, it seems like an epic dessert. But for you, you see the Frankenstein-like disgusting mix of not-so-fresh items that should never share a bowl together. And you're just like, this, I'm glad you're eating that. I'm bummed I'm paying for that. But, um, and, and, you know, you just kind of have to let the kids experience for themselves that adding something to what you already have is not necessarily the best thing. That there are some things that compete against each other in the arena of your taste buds, things that do not complement each other. And having more ingredients is not the same thing as having the best ingredients. This is an important life lesson. But it applies to far more than just Froyo. Amen? Amen. Right, so, right, the, this is a very important life lesson because having more things in our lives is not necessarily the same thing as having the best things in our lives. And so today, we're going to look at the story of Elijah, the prophet of God, in 1 Kings 18. You can turn your Bibles there now. And he has this contest, as we just read, with those in Israel who had added gods, the gods of the surrounding nations, to their customary worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, they did this to secure for themselves the things that they wanted, rather than trusting God for what they needed. And the story of Elijah, while it's kind of epic is also not too unlike our own. You see, Elijah lived in a day very similar to ours where there were competing claims to truth and reality and there were competing forces for loyalty and allegiance. Um, Now, before we get into the story, there are two things you need to know. First of all, you need to know who is in power and second of all, you need to know what they were into. So first of all, who is in power during the story? See, Israel had a great king named David. He was a man after God's own heart. He, was, he is the king. And uh, he has a son named Solomon who has a son named Rehoboam. And Rehoboam is a greedy young guy who won't listen to the older guys who know what's up in leading a government. And so instead he listens to his very greedy peers who say you should make everybody subject to slavery and have this great huge workforce. And he goes, yeah, that's a great idea. And so he subjects all these people to slavery and they don't like it. And so the entire kingdom splits up into two. Are you tracking so far? Okay, so there's a civil war, right? And you have um, 
the South and the North, and then Abraham Lincoln uh, frees the slaves. At, well, that's a different story. But you have a North and a South, ten tribes in the North, one tribe, Judah, in the South, and all the tribes up in the North in Israel have a succession of very, very, very bad kings. None of the kings are good kings. Um, they all, beginning with Jeroboam, son of Nebat, lead the people into idolatry, leading, worshiping false gods and doing all kinds of injustice, oppressing the poor. So that's who's in charge at this point. Bad kings who land with Ahab. Ahab's one of the worst kings in Israel's history, and he marries a lady named Jezebel. More about her in a second. Now, that's who's in power, but what were they into? See, Ahab and his peers and a lot of the people in the ancient Near East worshipped different gods for different things. You see... Um, Every god had a certain kind of sphere of influence. They had a jurisdiction of authority and a scope of power, and it was limited. Limited scope, limited jurisdiction. And so, if you were in Egypt, you would worship the sun god, Ra, for the things that you needed out of the sun. If you were in Philistia, you would worship Dagon, the half-fish, half-man god, who was the god of sea and grain. And, of course, being a coastal city, a coastal country, you would need a fish grain God, to take care of the things that you needed. And so you would go to that God who had jurisdiction over those things and you would offer to him what you needed. Or if you were from Assyria, or influenced by Assyria in any ways, you would worship Asherah, who is the goddess of fertility. Now, in an agrarian society, how important is fertility? It's pretty important stuff, right? Like you need to have your animals have babies so those babies can have mate with other animal babies and you can have lots of animals and you'll be really rich and you need your land to produce lots of crops and then you also need to have lots of kids to be able to handle all the crops and all the animals. And so fertility is a big deal. And so you go to Asherah and you would offer the things that Asherah demanded in order to have a fertile kind of family and land. And so you offer something of value to get something you wanted. It's basically religious commerce. Okay. And you would do this other thing as well in order to get the God to act for you. And it was called sympathetic magic. And it sounds like something you would do with the sorting hat at Hogwarts to find out if you go in Hufflepuff or Slytherin or whatever, but you don't. It's a very different thing. Sympathetic magic is this practice where you would put on a show and you would demonstrate your loyalty to this God and you would, you would perform for it in order for the God to become sympathetic for your cause and actually now do something for you. And uh, so that's what the people were into. And so what Ahab does is he marries a lady named Jezebel who's from the country of Phoenicia. And a Phoenician princess is into a god named Baal or Baal and his jurisdiction and authority is the storm. He's a storm god, right? He controls weather and those kinds of things according to the Phoenicians. And so as soon as you secure trade with the Phoenicians by marrying the princess, you also import their gods. Are you tracking? Okay, good. So um, Elijah's story begins with a direct challenge to Baal and Ahab's alignment with him. And so in chapter 17, 1 Kings, we find the, uh, Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead, says to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So in other words, he challenges Baal and says, look, the thing that your God is supposed to have power over is going to be withheld from you. Unless I, as one of Yahweh's prophets, say otherwise. Okay? So he's speaking for God and he's saying, your God actually, um, while you think he has scope and jurisdiction over the storm, you're going to get no rain. 
So, three years go by after Jezebel has killed a whole bunch of prophets who are loyal to Yahweh. Uh, three years go by, and then God um, summons Elijah to come meet Ahab. And so he says to Ahab, basically, I want you, well, let's start here in verse 16. He, he has Ahab's employee, Obadiah, go get Ahab. And he says to him, uh, go, go summon Ahab. When, Elijah, uh, when Ahab saw Elijah, they've met up now, he says, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? In other words, Ahab is one of these guys who has deceived himself into thinking that his problems are coming from other people who take issue with his life and leadership. When in reality, the problem and the trouble that his life and leadership is experiencing is something that he's brought on himself. And so Ahab uh, serves as a warning sign to us because it's always easier to blame somebody else than take responsibility for our own lives. But the prophet of God will have nothing to do with his avoidance. He says, we're actually going to dive right in to how you have troubled Israel. And he does it in the most public way possible. Let's look at verse 18. He says, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replies, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned Yahweh's commands and have followed the Baals. Now, summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And so Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Now, Mount Carmel is an interesting place. Apparently, it was a place of worship of the true God, Yahweh, under Solomon and David. But it had since become the primary mountain range location for Baal worship. And so Elijah is essentially giving the prophets a home field advantage. Now, verse 21, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If, the law, if Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to him, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. So get two bulls, bulls for us, let Baal's prophets choose for themselves which one, let them cut it to pieces, put it on the wood, but don't set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wood and not set fire to it. Then you call in the name of your God and I'll call in the name of Yahweh, the God who answers by fire, he's God. Now, remember, storm God ought to be able to control things like lightning and thunder, right? So, you know, Thor swings his hammer around, he's got total control of the storm. Right? Baal ought to be able to produce a lightning bolt. So, again, home field advantage, Elijah's stacking the deck against himself, trying to help the, the Baalites out as much as he can. And the people all say, what you say is good. We agree with your terms. Contest on. Okay. Now, the first thing... Elijah does when he arrives is he challenges the people, right? He says, we're going to find out who's really God around here. We're going to find out who is really in charge, what's true, what's false. So let's have a contest. He sets out the terms in a way that seems very easy to the storm God followers. But look at the words that he uses. It conveys a very important truth, and this is our first point today, and that is this. He says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, then follow him. If Baal is God, and follow him, okay? And so, notice that Elijah does not say, um, if Baal is the God that you prefer, go ahead with him. Or if Yahweh is a God whose scope and jurisdiction you tend to like, go with him. He says, no, follow the God that's actually God. Um, The one who speaks and answers is the living God. Um, The NIV says, how long will you waver? 
Um, the ESV says, how long will you go on limping? Which is a little bit more accurate and precise to what's actually going on here. It's a word picture that, that basically means um, kind of our idiom for sitting on the fence. It's the same kind of thing. Like, how long will you sit on the fence? Except it's, it's a little bit more in-depth of a picture. It's how long will you limp? How long will you be crimp, crippled, essentially, by your two opinions? How long will you essentially fall between these two opinions? Um, in fact, Elijah doesn't say, you know what, you've abandoned Yahweh and critique him for that. He actually critiques him for not choosing to abandon Yahweh. He's like, you're not being true. You're actually um, trying to have it both ways and you can't. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 6 something very similar. You remember this? Where he says, a, a person cannot serve two masters. You'll either serve one and hate the other. You'll love one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Remember Jesus saying that? And so um, this is the inverse of how our culture sees it, though. Our culture looks at this question and says, why do we have to choose at all? Why even have a contest? You see, uh, can't I just pick the parts of, of the religion or the worldview that I like most? Like, can't, can't we have kind of a cosmic frozen yogurt kind of deal? Where, like, I can pick the ingredients for the things that I like in my life and then I'll go with it. And, and then if, if one of those things stops working for me, I'll go back to the, uh, the ingredient bar and figure out if I like something else a little bit more. Isn't all religion basically the same? Isn't it all headed the same direction? This is, this is the question our culture would ask. But Elijah is addressing this and he's saying, look, it's impossible to mix gods. You can't do it. You're, you're limping along between two opinions, but it's not really walking. You're not really living. You're falling. You're crippled. You don't actually, you cannot serve both gods. There's, it, it's impossible to be spiritually neutral. You're always going to be worshiping. Now, what is it that you're really aligned with? And so there's a person who, of course, would think, I'm totally neutral, right? But they're really not being honest. It's the person who says, hey, look, religion's like a giant mountain, right? And every religion's kind of climbing up a different side of it. They only see a little bit. They see their path, and they're all trying to get to the same place. Everybody basically is heading in the same direction. Now, this is an interesting critique, and I hear it fairly frequently. Um, but what they're really saying is every religion, every kind of view of God has a limited picture of God. And because they only see their own path, they only see their part of the mountain, they're really inaccurate and wrong. But the person who's saying that is really saying this, and this is the irony of the whole claim of being neutral. The person who says that says, but I see the whole thing. I see enough to know everybody else is wrong. Right? They're saying everybody's trying to get to the top, but I'm at the top, and I know what everybody's trying to do. It's an incredibly uh, like self-absorbed kind of position to hold, and in fact, it contradicts itself. So say, well, you can't make a claim about what God's really like because you only see a little bit, but you're actually saying, I see all of it. Right? So you're actually doing the same thing. But the Elijah story shows us that there isn't a position of neutrality when it comes to our worship. We all worship, whether you're religious or irreligious, we all worship. But when we mix our loyalties, Elijah's saying, you're limping. You're not really walking. You're falling between opinions. There's no third place to stand. But here's the thing. For most of you in this room, if you've been a part of a church for very long, um, the contest isn't so much which God is the right God to worship, but the contest is a challenge about, really, how exclusive is your worship? How exclusive is God in your life? Because you can say all day long, like, I'm into Jesus, I serve Jesus, but in reality, the opinions of your friends are far more important to you. And so, um, God doesn't have your exclusive worship, he just gets what, he just gets you when it goes along with what your friends think is okay and cool. 
Or, or maybe you feel good about having a Christian worldview, but actually doing the things that Jesus did and the power of the Spirit like he did doesn't really fit in to your busy schedule because you're more aligned with what your schedule gets you than where Jesus is leading you. So the reality is that once we begin to mix our loyalties with lesser gods or false gods, whether it's our kids or success or money or whatever it is that you put in there, we're limping. And I'm just saying you're crippled. It's a crippling place to mix your loyalties with lesser gods. Because the reality is we always begin to resemble whatever it is that we make ultimate in our lives. Are you with me? The story continues. Look at verse 25. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls, prepare it first, so that because um, there's so many of you. Now call in the name of your God, but don't light the fire. Okay, so then they, they took the bull, they prepared it, and then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. That's a long time to be shouting out. Right? They're hoarse. Baal, answer us. Answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And so they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. And so they shouted louder, and they slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered no one paid attention. And so Elijah uh, gives the prophets of Baal this opportunity to summon a response from their God. But nothing happens. Nothing occurs. They, they begin to practice their sympathetic magic, right? They, they show th- their, their dance to incur Baal's sympathy, to coax him to rain down fire. But nothing happens. Then Elijah begins to mock them. Hey, maybe your God's in deep thought somewhere. Um, the ESV says that uh, he's maybe relieving himself. So it's a word picture. It's a pair of words that kind of mean he's thinking it through on the toilet. Right? It's like he's having a magazine break. <laughs> he's just checking his email because it's quiet in there. Don't you parents know it? Right? It's like nobody else is in there. So, right? And so maybe that's what's going on. Or maybe he's on a business trip. Or maybe he's gone abroad. He's traveling. He might be asleep. You should just get louder. And so the prophets try harder. And now here is where the story starts to reveal what happens when we serve a false god. What happens when we serve an idol? The text says that they danced around the altar that they had made, shouting to Baal to answer them. It also says that the longer it was that he didn't answer, the more they began to, to slash themselves, to mute, to cut themselves, to get attention, to cry for help. Somebody do something for me. Somebody do something for me. Now, here's the thing that happens when you are serving an idol or a false god. Uh, first of all, it answers to you. And second of all, it makes you perform and bleed for it. Now, those don't sound like they go together. They sound like contradictions. Let me tell you how this works. First of all, an idol idol answers to you. The point of a God that can't talk, that can't hold you to account, that can't intervene in your life, is that it creates the illusion that you're in control. I'm calling you to answer me for my wants, desires, and needs. But keep in mind that an idol can be anything, right? It can be anything that gives you a sense that by having it, Uh, And by having jurisdiction over a particular area of life, you have control. 
It, it can be your sense of accomplishment at work, a sense of pride in a child at home, the amount of money in your bank account, really anything can go in there. Uh, the, the second thing, though, that happens is once you give that idol, uh, or once you begin to try to have an idol um, that answers to you, the idol turns on you. Uh, so they started with a simple call to Baal to answer them, but the sympathetic magic started, they danced, but the dancing wasn't enough until they bled. See, every idol that we make will make you perform for it. A false god will always ask you to bleed for it. Um, and that's exactly what we see all the time. See, let's say you idolize beauty, and beauty not only controls you, it begins to demand sacrifice. And it starts to control you, and it make you, makes you feel prideful when you actually are successful in attaining it. It makes you feel utterly depressed when you fail to attain it. But the reason false gods make us perform for them is precisely because they have no kind of power to do anything for us. And so they just keep taking more and more of our time, love, energy, creativity until we have nothing left to give. So an idol will make you bleed for it. It makes you perform to feel valued and accepted and approved. It makes you perform to feel like you're worth anything. So, so far, we've seen through Elijah's story the impossibility of having two gods. You can't be spiritually neutral. On the other hand, we've seen what a false god does, right? That it actually makes you bleed for it. But how do you recognize and know the living God? Um, Let's take a look at verse 30. Uh, Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. So they came to him, and he prepared the altar of Yahweh, which had been torn down. And Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of Yahweh had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. Now with the stones he built an altar in the name of Yahweh and dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. And he arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. He said to them, fill large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again. And they did it. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. And the water ran down around the altar and filled the trench. Now remember, they've been in a three-year drought. (laughs) Okay, So this is an enormous act of faith. Uh, Elijah's saying, look, pour water all over it. And not only is it an act of faith, and it's a little bit of an in-your-face, but it's also an incredible way of saying, look, whatever fire happens here is going to be re- the real deal. It's not going to be a trick. This is not a, this is not a magic show. Um, verse 36, at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet stepped forward and prayed, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Yahweh, answer me, so that the people will know you, that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood and the stones and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. Okay, so the question is, how do you know the living God? Here's the answer. He'll speak by fire. He'll speak by fire. Okay, so what do I mean? I mean two things by that. Um, it usually happens in two ways. First of all, the first way, it's usually not enough for God to get a hold of you intellectually. It's not usually enough for God to be a great idea. He usually has to send a thunderbolt down into your life, right? On some level, there has to be a thunderbolt. See, this is a contest um, where God has withheld rain for three years, something that Baal was supposed to be able to offer. 
If he had just started letting it rain, he would have utterly corrupted the people spiritually. Because what happens when we're successful? Usually, we go on thinking, I'm fine, I'm great. I have, I have no problems, and it confirms us in our idols. So God sends a thunderbolt so close that he singes our eyebrows. Right? He, he, he knocks us down in some way, not in a mean or vindictive way, but he gets your attention. He becomes a living reality to you and not just an idea. Has he ever done that to you in your life? And you usually don't find God unless he wakes you up somehow. And so this is the first part of what I mean when I say he'll answer by fire. The, the second part is even more important. This is, if nothing else today, get this. That, that when God answers by fire, you have to see where the fire touches down. Now, why, why didn't the fire come down on all those unfaithful prophets? Why didn't God just burn people up? I mean, he could have, right? Where did the fire land? On, on the sacrifice. It landed on the animal sacrifice. Uh, later on in the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, we, we meet Jesus in a conversation with the disciples at the end of chapter 9. He, he's headed to Jerusalem and he says to his disciples, I want you to stop in this town in Samaria. Jews and Samaritans don't get along, by the way. And the disciples go there to prepare for the Lord's coming. And the town rejects him. Says, Not here. Don't come here because they know he's headed to Jerusalem. We don't associate with those people. And that's another sermon another time. But for now... It, it was a rejection of Jesus. And James and John, two of his disciples, say, we know what to do. Let us call fire down from heaven like Elijah. Let, let's do that. Seems like a good idea, right? And Jesus says, bad idea. Right? And he rebukes them. He rebukes them and says, essentially, you don't get the Elijah story. They're thinking of fire of judgment on sin. Later, we, we meet Jesus in chapter 12, where he says to his disciples, I've come to bring fire on earth, and I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it's completed. He's anticipating the moment where he'll be baptized by fire. Now, what's this about? See, Jesus says, I've come to be baptized with fire. I've, I've come to receive the fire. He's saying to his disciples, you don't get the Elijah story. I'm not Elijah calling fire down in judgment. I'm the sacrifice that received the fire of judgment. Don't you guys get it yet? That's where I'm at in the story. And so the reason the people are not consumed by the fire is because there was a sacrifice that went up there. And while that animal didn't satisfy the justice of God, it symbolically pointed to a sacrifice that would. You see, Jesus Christ went up to Mount Calvary and it was there that he absorbed into himself the most, all the wickedness of the world, the, the sin of the world and took into himself the fire of justice so that you and I could be consumed with the fire of God's love and power. You see, Baal didn't demand exclusive loyalty and he offered nothing, but he demanded people bleed for him. Jesus Christ says, I've come and I've called you to exclusive loyalty, but I offer everything and I've bled for you. See, every idol in your life will say, slash yourself for me, perform for me. But you know you found the living God, the only God who says, I've been slashed for you. I've performed for you. I've bled for you. And the only way to actually overcome the power of idols in our lives is to actually see Jesus Christ for who he is. That he's the one who freely gives what every other god 
demand that you perform for by your blood. See, Jesus Christ, through his blood, achieves the forgiveness and acceptance, a new relationship with the living God. He gives new identity, purpose, and mission. And he says to you, let me serve you. You have to let me serve you. You have to trust me and let me apply my work to your life. But you have to be receptive enough to embrace what I've done. See, the living God speaks by fire. Hebrews 1 says that God in days past spoke through the prophets, but in these last days has spoken through his son. So the question today is, are you hearing the message of the son, the one who's absorbed the fire so that you could be in him? So we need to grasp that not only does Elijah call out for God to answer, but he does so for the sake of turning the people's hearts Turning the people's hearts. See, Elijah's prayer is that God would answer for the sake of the people knowing him, that they would turn their hearts back to him. And as we consider Jesus this morning, the one who took the fire for us, as we consider his incredible grace this morning, will you wrestle with this question of who has jurisdiction over my heart? Who has jurisdiction to rule and reign in me? See, if God is like Jesus, as the Gospels say that he is, then why wouldn't, why wouldn't we be able to trust his character and power to have jurisdiction over every area of our lives? See, I want to wrap up this morning with a thought from one commentator named Paul House. He says this, God sustains and protects his prophets while Baal lets his die. Yahweh feeds the orphans and widows and raises the dead, but Baal lets the needy suffer. Yahweh can send fire or rain from heaven, but Baal cannot respond to his most valiant worshipers. A god like Baal is not God at all. A god like Yahweh must be God of all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your great grace to us, for sending Jesus Christ to go where we should go, to absorb what is due us so that we can be found in him and grow in his righteousness and live loyalty to to his rule and reign and his mission. Help us today to ground our identity and our loyalty in the one who's given everything for us. Thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the way you speak through him. In Christ's name, amen.